Ever since the first tick-tock of time You brought order to a world undefined Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Our, Our teaching team, team is made up of men and women who love asking probing questions of each week's scripture portion. To which our community responds with curiosity, courage, and a desire to, to expand, expand in faith, faith hope, and love. hope, and love. We follow the Revised Common Lectionary, and we follow the church calendar, because, because they, they anchor us in something, something which can, can hold us, no matter what life throws our way. We exist to join God's work of cultivating new beginnings in all of us everywhere cultivating new beginnings in all of us everywhere we exist to join god's work of cultivating new beginnings in all of us everywhere we hope you enjoy this week's teaching we hope you enjoy this week's teaching we hope you enjoy this week's teaching this morning's second reading is from first corinthians chapter 2 verses 1 through 12. when i came to you brothers and sisters i did not come proclaiming the mystery of god to you in lofty words or wisdom For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my proclamation were not with plausible words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on the power of God. Yet among the mature we do speak wisdom, though not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to perish. But we speak God's wisdom, secret and hidden, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the human heart conceived, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For what human being knows what is truly human except the human spirit that is within? So also no one comprehends what is truly God's except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit that is from God, so that we may understand the gifts bestowed on us by God. The Word of the Lord. Morning, everybody. So I have an admission to make. This particular passage, for those of you who are lectionary nerds, and I'm sure there's maybe one of you here, uh, this particular passage is not in this week's lectionary. I know. He's been installed for 10 minutes, and he's breaking the rules. What's going on? Right? But the reason I asked if I could preach off of this, first of all, it is coming up in year A, which is when we start, when we hit Advent here late November. So it's coming. (laughs) I just jumped ahead a little bit and grabbed it. Because when I was thinking about the idea of being a pastor and how do you succinctly and simply explain what it means to be a pastor, as I prayed on that and meditated on that, I kept coming back to this second verse of this passage from Paul, where he says, I resolved to know nothing but Christ and him crucified among you. And I thought, you know, if I go through the rest of my ministry and I resolve to know nothing but Christ and him crucified among you, and if I go through the rest of this ministry and seek to help others know nothing but Christ and him crucified, I don't know how, as a teaching pastor, I could do any better than that. And obviously, that's a complex thing, and there's a whole lot of layers, and y'all didn't come here for a three-hour sermon, so we're not going to get through all of them. 
But I do want to dig into a little bit of, of what that means or what I think that means or what, I, that is, what I'm grabbing a hold of as I step off into this journey with you and among you. Um, and so to start with, you have to start with what Paul is talking about here, what the context of where Paul's at. Right? He's writing this letter to the church in Corinth. And you have to remember the church in Corinth is a Roman city. It's in a Roman city, right? And the Romans love them some status. Status was very important in Roman cities. Everybody knew their status, everybody knew everybody else's status, and everybody knew where they ranked as opposed to everybody else, and they were constantly trying to climb that ladder. Status was very, very important in Corinth, too important if you asked Paul. Because what inevitably happens is you have other teachers that come through this church in Corinth and they're teaching what they, their perspective on Christ. And some of them are, are great orators. Paul's talking in this passage, you know, he's trying to be super humble, right? And while well, I didn't come to you with fancy words and Let's be honest. Paul could sling some words, right? I mean, there's that, there's that passage in Acts where he's in you know, Athens and he's trading back and forth with Greek philosophers. Paul could speak pretty well. But he's trying to be humble here and he's trying to be humble for a reason because what's happening is there's these teachers that are coming through and they're speaking in kind of the style of Greek philosophy. And Greek philosophy was highly regarded in the Roman church, in the, in the Roman cities. And so they see these, these speakers that are speaking like Greek philosophers, and they think, oh, these guys must have the truth. These guys must have the right angle on things, because look, they're speaking in this style that we, we hold so high. And part of their status becomes, okay, which teacher am I following? And Paul's pushing back hard against that in this passage. He's pushing hard against that, and he's saying that, he's trying to remind them that the power of God lies not in fancy words, it lies not in human wisdom, which is his phrasing of what would be Greek philosophy. The power of God is found in knowing Christ and knowing Christ crucified and resolving to know nothing but that. That's where the power of God re resides. Not in human wisdom, not in fancy words, but in knowing Christ and knowing Christ crucified. And Paul's trying to take a very humble approach to that. Why is that important? That's important because as human beings, of course, we're never going to fully understand Christ and Christ crucified in our lifetimes. Our lifetimes are just too short. And we're imperfect beings. And as imperfect beings, we can never fully know Christ. So you have to approach this with a certain sense of humility. There's a theologian by the name of Scott McKnight who wrote this. He says, when we become strident in our words or when we bully those who do not conform to our ideas, we cease Christian community and fall for the way of empire. When we speak the words of Christ to others, and we give those words to the Spirit, we create Christian communication. You're going to see a lot of different styles of people preaching up here. I preach different than Kara. Kara preaches different than Allie. Becky's going to preach different than all of us. But the through line is that you won't see anybody up here pounding their fist and saying, the Lord saith thusly, and telling you exactly what you need to think. That's not how we do it here. We're explorers. We ask questions. We dive into the text and try to see what's there and try to get as many different perspectives on the text as we can because collectively, as human beings, we see better than we do individually. That's how we try to do things here at Genesis. And that's why, as he talks about letting the Spirit do the work, that's why after the sermon we're going to have the prayers of confession and then we're going to have 60 seconds of silence. You know, I spent all week crafting this 20, it's probably going to be more like 25-minute sermon, and y'all are going to take one or two lines home with you, if I'm lucky. 
And I understand that. But the two lines you take home are different than the two lines you take home or the different than the two lines you guys take home. And that's the Spirit's job to figure out what you all need to hear, not mine. I'm offering up perspective on a text. I'm trying to understand how to better know Christ and how to better know Christ with you. And then you all interact with the Spirit and the Spirit will speak to you and will tell you what you need to hear out of this sermon. I'm convinced of that. So there's a humility we need to bring to knowing Christ and to knowing Christ crucified. And I'll be real honest with you, as we go through this, we're probably going to talk a lot more about Christ than about Christ crucified. I know, weird. But the truth is that in most Christian situations, we jump right to the crucifixion and the resurrection, and that's enormously important. I saw a tweet this week that said that, hey, remember that the cradle and the crown don't mean anything without the cross. And I get that. I'm not saying it's wrong. But I hate that we try to rank these things, like, well, the crucifixion's everything and everything else is you know, subsequent to that. I don't, I'm not a big fan of that, right? Christ lived a life, and that life meant something. His ministry meant something. We should be talking about that as much as we talk about the resurrection and the crucifixion together. Amen? So when we start talking about knowing Christ, as I sit up here and say that I want to resolve to know nothing but Christ, to my mind, that means we have to talk incarnation and why God incarnated. Last weekend, we were up at Covenant Pines, uh, and on the Saturday night, uh, as we were doing s'mores out in front of the recreation center, I looked up, and it was almost a full moon. There was a big, bright star just right up next to the moon, and I'm like, that's probably not a star, and so I get out my phone and my handy-dandy sky map app, and sure enough, that's Jupiter. And so I start calling people over and say, look, look at this. We're standing on a planet, looking at a moon, looking at another planet, and it just... I don't know, that stuff just blows my mind. Everybody was very nice. Okay, that's great, Dan, come. I'm going to go back to the s'mores now, if that's okay. But I, that stuff just gets to me. It really, really does. When you start thinking about the vastness of the universe. I don't know if you guys are following the James Webb telescope pictures as they come in. My goodness, Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. I, I don't know what better way to describe these things. Incredible to look at. One of the most recent ones is of the Orion Nebula. And if you, if you can picture the constellation Orion in your mind, uh, it's you know, the hunter with the bow and the three stars that form the belt. Everybody's familiar with that. And then there's a sword coming off of the belt. And at the tip of the sword, if you looked at that patch of sky far enough away, there's this thing called the Orion Nebula, which is a bunch of dust and gas and, and new baby stars being born constantly. And we had seen it before, but James Webb took a sharper picture than we've ever seen of this thing before. And it told us that we, this, this nebula is 1,350 light years away, which sounds like a lot, but I mean, how do you get your head around that number? I'll tell you how to get your head around that number. When you look at that picture, the light that formed that picture, the light that was reflected off of that dust and off of that gas and the coming from those stars, it began its journey towards Earth in the year 672. That means is that picture that you're looking at would be what that nebula looked like if you were standing in front of it, imagine that's possible, in the year 672. If you want to know what it looks like now, not a problem, wait 1,350 more years, and we'll take another picture, and that's what it looks like right now. And if your brain starts to feel like it's about to leak out of your ear, that's okay, that's how these things work. But that's just a beginning to try and scratch the surface of how vast this universe is, how enormous this universe is. And I say that, because the God that's responsible for every single particle of this universe 
decided to become a human being. Valued relationship enough with humanity that God decided to take on human form and live a human life. Why would the God responsible for this enormous universe, this beautiful, vast, overwhelming universe, decide to become a little tiny human being on this little indescript rock in the middle of an indescript solar system in an indescript galaxy? Why would you do that? Why? Well, there's a hundred reasons why God did that. I'm going to focus on two. The first reason I think God did that was to let us know what it means to be truly human beings, to live our fullest lives. Because we were made, we were designed, if you go all the way back to Genesis, to be reflectors, to be image, divine, divine image bearers. What does that mean? It means that if the very nature of God is love, if at God's core God is love, our job is to absorb that love and pour it out to the rest of creation. That's what we were made to do. And sin showed up and clogged up the works and things don't work how they're supposed to work. So how better for us to understand what it's supposed to look like than God, God's self, taking on human form and becoming one of us. Demonstrating in his life, demonstrating, yes, in his crucifixion and demonstrating in the resurrection what the fullness of the human experience is supposed to look like. And there's a thousand different stories of how that works. That's the first reason I think that God became human, that God incarnated. The second reason is has to do with the enemy, right? And you can call Satan or the devil or whatever you want to call it. Some of those images to me get a bit cartoonish, so I stay away from them and just call him the enemy. But I think the enemy wants to do two things. One, convince us we're alone, and two, convince us that there is no hope. Because if he can do that, if he can convince us that we're alone and convince us that we're hopeless, we are capable of some grotesque forms of evil. The truth is that both of those things are lies. There's always hope, and we are never alone. And I think that's part of why God became a human being, to demonstrate that. And again, there's a thousand stories in the Bible that show this. My favorite comes in John 11. In John chapter 11, we have the story of Jesus resurrecting Lazarus. And if you remember how the story goes, Jesus and his disciples get word that Lazarus is dying. The disciples want to rush to be with the family, and Jesus says, no, we have to wait. And they wait three days. Seems odd. Why would he do that? But then they go to, to the city where Lazarus and his family lives, and as they're approaching the city, uh, Lazarus' sisters come out. Mary comes out and says, Rabbi, if you'd only been here, I know you could have saved my brother. Martha comes out and says, Rabbi, I know if you'd only been here, you could have saved my brother. And Jesus expresses almost surprise and says, well, don't you understand about the resurrection? And they, yeah, yeah, I understand. And they think he's talking about end times. They think he's talking about, you know, the wrapping up of things. Yeah, I know we'll see Lazarus again. I, you know, I understand that. He's not thinking about that. He's thinking about right now because he knows he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knows that all the suffering and all the pain and all the grief and all the overwhelming emotion that he sees being poured out is about to be turned upside down and turned into joy and turned into celebration. He's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knows this. Now me, I'm not a patient person by nature. People are constantly trying to tell me, Dan, slow down a little bit. So I would get to the getting, man. I mean, I'm showing up. Let's get this guy raised. Let's go. I'm not, you know, messing around. That's not what Jesus does. Instead, he takes a moment and he's observing the pain and the grief 
and the heartache and all of the emotions that people are feeling as they're thinking of their lost brother Lazarus. And in one of the shortest verses in all of the Bible, it says, and Jesus wept. Why? Why why would he weep? He's about about to raise Lazarus from the dead. Again, he's about to turn all of this pain and suffering and, and heartache into joy and celebration. Why would he weep? I believe God wept in that moment. Jesus wept in that moment because he wanted them to know and he wanted us to know that as living a full life as a human being, God has entered into every single emotion we've ever experienced. Everything that has ever crushed our heart, broken our heart, or filled our heart with joy and love, God has experienced as a human being. So that in our lowest moments, when we feel most alone, when we feel most isolated, we can stop and know, and know that God is with us and God understands what we're going through. There is no burden anybody in this room is carrying that they have to carry alone because God lived a life and God understands and God has been through it and God wants to be in it with you. There is nothing in this room that anybody is carrying they have to carry alone because God created Christian community. He created us to be there for one another, to share that love, that perfect love that Jesus modeled with one another. We have prayer teams, we have care teams, we have people that go through surgeries and we bring them meals. This is what we do. This is what we do. But even if we weren't here, even if not a single one of us did uh, lifted a finger for one another, we still wouldn't be alone because God lived a life. And the power of God, the power of knowing Christ and knowing nothing but Christ is understanding that we are never alone. And we are never alone forced to buy the lie that the enemy is trying to put in our minds and put in our hearts. If we resolve to know nothing but Christ, we know what it looks like to be a true human being, to be a true image bearer of the divine. We know what it looks like to never be alone, to be the followers of a God who know every single emotion we've ever experienced and who wants to be in it and carrying those burdens with us. That's the power of resolving to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. Like I said, this section will be a little bit shorter. (laughs) Y'all didn't come here for a three-hour sermon. I told you earlier. Uh, The power of Christ crucified lies in the upside-down nature of the kingdom's power, right? Power here on earth looks like what? Money, political influence, physical strength, military power, These are the things seen as powerful. These are the things that were seen as powerful in the days of the Roman Empire. Jesus was nailed to a cross as a sign of that empire's strength. And yet at the weakest moment, as it appeared to be the weakest moment of Christ's life, as he lays bruised and battered and nailed to a cross, it was the strongest moment in the history of the kingdom. Because in that moment, Jesus reflected as well as anyone possibly could the love of God in forgiving the other thief on the cross, in forgiving those who murdered him. Because the only thing that's stronger than political power, than money, than military power, than physical strength, the only thing that can defeat all of those is self-sacrificial love. Paul says in the chapter previous to this, in chapter one of, his, of the, book of first, or the letter to 1 Corinthians, that what appears like foolishness to those who aren't saved is the ultimate strength to those who follow Christ. I'm paraphrasing. 
But what looks like foolishness, Christ nearly naked, battered, and bruised on a cross, is actually the strongest thing that could possibly happen. And it's in understanding that strength, it's in understanding the never-ending well of love that God is pouring into each and every single one of us, and that we are to pour out to one another, that we find the power of the kingdom and the power of God. And so when you start talking about knowing nothing but Christ and him crucified, you're seeking power not of an earthly nature, but you're seeking the power of self-sacrificial love. And we know it because Christ modeled it, and we know it because Christ reminds us we're not alone, and we know it because the cross tells us that the most powerful thing in the world is not money, is not politics, is not the military, is not physical strength. It's self-sacrificial love, period. Amen? I want to close with a, a quote from Scott McKnight again. There's a lot of talk of wisdom in this passage, and he writes that wisdom then for Paul is not about knowledge, study, expertise, technology, and mastery, which was a real bummer for me to read, by the way, because that's some of my favorite stuff in the world. <laughs> wisdom then for Paul is not about knowledge, study, expertise, technology, and mastery. Wisdom <clears throat> is to live in God's world, in God's way, and God's way is Christ, and Christ's way is the cross. Wisdom is to live in the world, in God's way, and God's way is Christ, and Christ's way is the cross. I stand here before you today, and I will stand here before you going forward, and I resolve to know nothing but Christ and him crucified, because that teaches me what it means to be a full human being. It teaches me that I am never, ever alone, and it teaches me that the true power of God is found in self-sacrificial love. And that teaching, it's my job to share with all of you, and I'm grateful, so grateful for that opportunity. Amen? Amen. Thank you for listening to the Genesis West podcast. If, if you, you find, find yourself, yourself nearby, nearby on Sunday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. We meet at Elam Church Center in Robbinsdale, Minnesota. If you, if have, you have any, any questions or would like to connect with us, please visit us at www.genesiscove.org.